Hey guys, thanks for joining us for episode nine. If you're liking what you've heard so far, feel free to like, follow, subscribe. Um, we're on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, anywhere that you can get your your podcasts, we're there. Um, we have a very special episode today. We are with the Kokomo Jackrabbits general manager, Michael Lieberman. It's something that we're pretty excited about. You know, anytime you get to talk to a general manager about what he does on a regular basis is pretty exciting. Michael, how are we doing today? Doing very well, thanks. How are you doing? We're doing great. Thanks for joining us. Happy to be here. So our first question, um, general manager is a title that everybody thinks is like, I think of it being a top dog. What what does that mean? Like I've, I've played video games and I've been the general manager, but obviously it's got to be different. Um, if I had to describe general manager, think of both the top and the bottom of every organization. Um, I get to be the guy that for the most part drives, drives the car day to day, but also everything else that filters through the organization and doesn't get caught by someone eventually falls back in my lap as well. So it's, uh, it's very much a case of um, a lot of big things and then all the little things that you never really thought of. Sure. And I think a lot of times people think of the GM as like the guy who's trading and like acquiring players and things like that. Um, and I'm sure that's part of it. What are the little things too, that you maybe would consider to be something that you might handle? And then I guess on a bigger level, what are the things that um, really do affect like team composition and things like that? Well, it's funny you mentioned team composition and trades and things like that. And um the general manager definition for a major league level position is very different from minor league baseball or summer collegiate baseball where I am. Um, in major league baseball, we picture Theo Epstein and Brian Cashman sitting in a booth with, uh, uh, with a bunch of Ivy League grads around them and grizzled scouts and just watching the game and chatting about players. Um, when you're in minor league baseball, it's everything except for that. Uh, a typical affiliated minor league baseball general manager never really talks about players. He never really, or she never really gets involved on anything that happened between the white lines. You handle all of the, the business operations, marketing, sales, food and beverage, facility operations, uh, travel, that you talk about players more because you're making a social media post or because you need to figure out who's rooming with whom on the road. Um, you don't get involved in, we really need to bolster the bullpen with a left-hander. Now, in summer collegiate ball and independent baseball, some general managers do get involved in that side of things. Um, personally, I know my limitations. And uh, I was never a talent guy. I played baseball until I was 10 years old. I got one hit all season long and decided it was time to retire from the game and, uh, and quickly started my management career. Uh, so when we start talking about players and we get together with coaches or, uh, or other on-field personnel, they're the guys that are standing behind the cage and pitcher throws a pitch and they say, and I really like the tilt on that slider. I really like the rotation there. All I could say is I can't hit it. So I let the experts handle what they're good at. And um, yes, I hire sometimes the coaches, depending on where we are and what I've been doing. Um, and I always tell the coaches, I will stay out of your business as long as you're handling your business. Um, at the end of the season, we're going to have a conversation about how the team performed on the field, off the field, in the community. And if we liked the way you directed the team, then you'll be back again. And if there were problems, I'm not the guy that's going to walk into your locker room and ask you why you're batting that guy clean up. I trust you to put together the team, handle the team day to day, and, uh, and do your thing. Do what you're good at. And... And then at the end of the, the summer, at the end of the season, we'll have a conversation. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. It sounds like you have your hands kind of in a lot of the organizational aspects. 
Um, what is the, what does the structure of the organization look like? You mentioned a little bit of the marketing tactics, a little bit of the coaching side. Is that something that you have your hand in everything? Are you more specialized? You mentioned away from like the talent side of stuff. I generally stay away from the, the talent side when, if I'm involved in hiring a coach, then I will tell that coach, especially at this level in summer collegiate baseball, I want you to go out there and recruit the team. You're going to talk to all the college coaches. You're going to leverage your relationships in order to, uh, to put together this team. And I want you to do that. I don't want you to, to, uh, to depend on me or expect me to do certain things because I don't want you to, to sit down in my office in July and say, you know, we'd be in first place right now if you would have let me get the guys I wanted. You can put together the roster exactly the way you think is necessary, knowing that you're going to be judged on your performance, just like any of us are in any sports organization or any job for that matter. So you put together the team. It's going to reflect your personality, your desire, your direction. And if that team wins a championship, then great. And if that team finishes in second to last place uh, and we have problems off the field, then we'll, we'll have that conversation too. If somebody wants me to pick up the phone and, and maybe leverage my experience or my relationships in the game, I'm happy to do that. But I expect that our coaches have more relationships than I do, at least as far as getting players are concerned. Um, from my knowledge, you joined Kokomo back in January. Um, of this year a long time now haven't I? <laughs> uh do you have any first steps or goals for this organization i know you've been and we'll get into it but i know you've been kind of all over in baseball across the <laughs> nation um do you have any first steps or, or goals i guess um there are a lot of people who when they take over a job for a team that's been around for a few years they jump behind the wheel and they want to turn that car around in any direction, but the one it's going in. They want to start putting their imprint on the organization right away. Um, and the past for that organization be damned. Uh, I'm a little more uh, deliberate in the way I like to approach a new organization um, it helps to know what they've done, where they've been, and, uh, and what's been going on, what went right and what went wrong. Um, the fact that I'm here doesn't always mean that somebody, that somebody drove this organization into a ditch. Uh, sometimes it, there was just an opportunity. Somebody jumped somewhere else and, uh, and a position was open here. I think... Um, we, we got past that honeymoon period. And a lot of people in sports, particularly minor league baseball, will tell you that when you have a new team and a new ballpark, you have a honeymoon period for about two or three years where you can just ride. This is a new team and a new park. Come on out and see us. When new is no longer new anymore, then you have to sell the innate experience and coming to the ballpark and what what the the jackrabbits organization means and uh, i think perhaps we lost sight of exactly what we mean and so my job coming here is to figure out what we have done right what we have done wrong and maybe refine our direction a little bit as opposed to redefining us yeah, and I can definitely speak, um, being from Lafayette, I can speak to the hype around the new the new facility. I was able to play high school baseball there a couple of times, which was very awesome. Um, you mentioned kind of uh, maybe the differences between, I want to talk about the differences between a startup, which you've had some experience in, and, and kind of entering into a role where the team's already founded. What are some, what are some differences between those two in your eyes? Well, have you guys ever watched a watched anything? It could be a, uh, a sporting event. It could be a commercial. It could be a TV show or a movie. And you're watching everything that happens on the screen. 
and you say to yourself, oh, I would have changed that or would have done that differently. That's what it's like to take over a team that's already in existence. It has a direction. It has substance. It has an identity of sorts. Sometimes you need to wipe away some dirt. You need to refine it. And sometimes you need to just pick it up and move it in a different direction. A startup, there's nothing to point at and say, oh, maybe we'll do that a little bit differently, or maybe we'll change the wording here, or the colors could change. A startup is a blank piece of paper. A startup is sitting down at your kitchen table and saying, what if? What if we have a team in this city? What if we had a new ballpark there? Creating everything from scratch. And there's a lot of enthusiasm to that. There's also a lot of responsibility to that um, because it can go wrong very, very quickly. Um, and I've found that out before. And sometimes wrong is not as wrong as it seems. Um, but when I was in Worcester um, and we created the Worcester Tornadoes, which was the first professional team in that city in decades. When we announced the team, the enthusiasm was through the roof. And uh, then we had to name the team contest. And we figured that the team was going to be named something having to do with rockets or rocketry, because the first uh, liquid-fueled rocket, I believe, was uh, developed right nearby. But we had this name the team contest and our fans brought up this tornado that had happened decades earlier in Worcester, wiped out part of the town. There were a number of fatalities. It was the only tornado that had ever hit town, but it devastated Worcester. And they brought it up because it symbolized what the city had been through and how they were able to conquer it and revitalize the town. It had been named an all-American city a number of times since then. So to, to many people, that tornado symbolized that Worcester could take anything and still overcome it. And we were, we were touched by that, uh, by that thought process. And we came up with the name the Worcester Tornadoes. Its initial um, unveiling didn't go the way we thought. Um, a local columnist uh, threw the name under the bus. They thought that calling it the, calling a team the Tornadoes was like calling a team the, the Thailand Tsunamis. Um, and so we spent a little while there explaining and backpedaling a little bit what this meant. And this was just a few years after the, the Manchester Fisher Cats introduced themselves as the New Hampshire primaries and got ripped in the, new, the newspaper and actually pulled that name back and renamed the team before it ever took the field. So we decided to stick through it and I'm glad we did because a lot of people embrace the name, but it goes to your point of the difference between a startup and an existing team. I'm not coming in here and trying to rebrand the Kokomo Jackrabbits. I'm not trying to come up with new colors, new branding, new logos, anything. But when you're a brand new team, you have to start from scratch and you can find out very quickly that what looked good to you and your partners and your staff in the confines of your office might not look as great when you start putting it out there in the wild. Yeah, I think that's interesting because there's like a certain freedom that comes from, I feel like a certain freedom that comes from being able to start with that blank slate. And then there's also, it's nice to have, on the other hand, it's nice to have something that's there and you can try to improve on. Do you have, like over your career, have you noticed, um, I guess, do you have like a preference to one or the other or is it just, I guess, approaching it from a different point of view? Um, 
in some circumstances, it's a question of, do you want to create your own problems or fix somebody else's? Um, it depends on, on who you are. And um, uh, to some people, launching that new team, starting with that blank slate, that's, that's hard. That is, um, that's too much. It's a lot easier to come in with an existing framework and steer the ship as opposed to build it. Um, I've done both. I enjoy both. Um, it all depends about the market, the fans, and, uh, and a lot of times the people you do it with and the people you do it for. Um, that's, you spend so much time in this business at the office working with your coworkers and spending time around your, your devoted fans that they're the ones who feel like family sometimes more than family does. And so um, you have to find a comfort level there. And when you have that, you could take on a brand new team, you could take on a turnaround project, or you can take over from someone who has been running a smooth sailing ship for, for years. Um, but no matter what you like, starting or or taking over, if you're not with people you enjoy working with, people that you want to work around, um, then it's gonna be hard. It's gonna be really hard. Yeah, so I think having a good time is not only important in the office, but I think it's probably something that you try to have for your fans. Um, what are, are there certain areas that you try to focus on and to ensure that your fans have a good time um, obviously the atmosphere is probably a little bit different than say a major league baseball game, just, just, you know, the varying degrees of, of the leagues, but are there certain aspects that you guys focus on to say, Hey, this will ensure that so-and-so has a good time. At this level. And in general, at I would say summer collegiate ball, indie ball, and at least the lower minors, if not all the way up to triple A, it's all about the experience. The context that I give you is when you go to your favorite Major League Baseball team's game. And uh, now I see, I believe that's a Chicago Bears shirt on you right now. Yep. If you went to a Bears game. You went to Soldier Field. And the Bears lost. Walking back to your car in the parking lot, your entire demeanor would be based on the outcome of the game. Didn't matter whether the experience was fun, you lost. And so that colors the entire experience. Whereas in my shoes, what I tell our staff and I've told our staff for years is, I wanna hear from our, I wanna hear a story about our fans going to work the next day, standing around the water cooler and talking about I went to the Jackrabbits game last night and it was fantastic. You know, the, the kids loved it. We got this giveaway. Um, the mascot was great. The food was awesome. The music had me bouncing in my seat. Uh, they were very entertaining. Somebody in our row won this swag bag from one of the sponsors. And then after the game, there were fireworks and everything was so affordable. It really was awesome. We can't wait to get back again. And somebody else at that water cooler says, so did the Jackrabbits win? And the person says, I can't even tell you. I don't remember. That's when we did our job right. When winning isn't what defines the experience. When winning is just icing on the cake. So for us, it's all of those things that I just mentioned. Making sure that every employee is smiling and welcoming that the in-game contests are fun and engaging, that our food is good and affordable, that our mascot is lively and in the crowd, and that our music resonates with fans, and that we entertain them in a way that no matter whether you're six or 76, male, female, 
love baseball, don't know which way you're supposed to run when you hit a ball, you still enjoy it. I've had people in meetings say to me, uh, a sponsor or, or, or an organization, almost apologetically say, you know, I don't even like baseball. And my answer is great. Then you won't be colored by what happens between the white lines. You're going to enjoy everything else that we have to offer. And somewhere along the line, if you come to realize that you like that guy because he hits the ball really hard or that guy because he throws it really fast or quite frankly, this guy over here because he looks good in tight pants, then whatever it is that gets you coming back, embrace it. And for us, it's let's control the things that we can control. General managers at the major league level have been for decades sweating the fact that they put all the pieces together, but they still can't control the guys and their performance on the field. For us, let's control the things we can. Is the beer cold or the hot dogs hot? Is the mascot good? Is the music bumping? Are the contests fun? Do all of our employees smile? Those are the things that make the experience. If along the way we're good, we win a title, players enjoy the, or fans enjoy the players, that's all fantastic. Um, you've kind of touched on a lot of the points, I think, too, but um, you've had experience running teams across the nation. I think Pittsburgh, Texas, Florida, Boston, I have listed. Um, and then you've set records in many ways in sales and league records and revenue. That all sounds like something that should happen or sounds like when you phrase it like that, it sounds easy, but I'm sure it's not. Um, what are some core principles you try to take to each job, I guess, and thinking, okay, these are some things I really want to focus on so that we can have a good experience for everybody at the game. Um, there's a few things that folks around here will tell you that I, I say a lot or people who work with me. Um, you have to make it easy to be a fan. Uh, it sounds simple, but fans shouldn't have to, uh, to work hard to come to the game, to get things at the ballpark, to find out information. Um, one of the simple things that we talk about in our office is um, a sentence or a conversation doesn't end with one of our employees saying no, or I don't know. But is the, way, is the next thing that comes after that phrase or that word. No, but I can get you this. No, we don't have that, but this is excellent. I don't know what the answer to that is, but let me go find out and I'm going to come back and I'm going to answer that for you. It's really, it's simple customer service, but you have to make it easy for them to be a fan. Don't make fans jump through hoops to buy. Don't make fans jump through hoops to enjoy because yes, you'll get someone who complains that you made it too hard, but most fans just disappear and you never find out about them. It's the very silent majority that disappears that you don't find out until you start looking at your attendance numbers two years from now and you realize you made it so hard to buy a ticket that fans just stopped doing it. One of the other things is if it's not fun, we're doing it wrong. And that's not just a mantra for our product and for what fans should see, but that's also for our staff. Um, our game day staff shows up and handles thousands of fans on a given day. Our front office staff will work tirelessly well into the night, night after night after night, weeks and months on end to put together a product that fans will enjoy and you have to take a step back and realize why you're doing this and and have fun with it uh, mike veck who is as bright a mind in this industry as i think there is um, mike's father bill is a legend uh, dating back to the 40s and 50s is a major league owner 
Um, it was Bill Vec who came up with, uh, with, I can't even tell you how many different promotions when he owned the White Sox in the seventies, they wore Bermuda shorts for the first game of a doubleheader. That quickly went away. Um, but Mike Vec has been doing this for years. And um, at a conference once, Mike was the last speaker. And this, I date myself because um, Mike, at the beginning of his, his, uh, his speech, said, everybody, grab your pens and your pencils. Nowadays, he'd be saying, All right, grab your phone and start taking notes. But he said, grab your pen and pencil. I have something that's really, really important for all of you. And you all are very smart. You're passionate. I've heard great ideas at this conference, but I want all of you to remember this. So I'm going to say it slowly, and I want you to write it down as I say it. He said, remember, let me pause, let everybody write, to have fun. And then you heard everybody in the audience chuckle and put their paper down. But sometimes you have to remember that. People come to this, come to the ballpark, come to the stadium, come to an arena, in part to escape everything else that's outside of it. And for three hours, they're, they're isolated from the world. They're, in, they're on their own little island. They're here to have fun. And we have to remind ourselves that where we work is where everyone else comes to escape. And it, when you put it in that perspective, when you realize to a certain extent the responsibility, but moreover the environment that you're in, then that context uh, allows you to, to look at your job differently and what you're building differently. Yeah, so much of your work has been in collegiate, collegiate ball rather than maybe professional stuff. Is there something that is, it, is attractive to you about the, the collegiate game rather than the professional, or is that just kind of how your path kind of took you? Some of it is the path, and, uh, and some of it, is I started in affiliated ball. I, I worked for a Kansas City Royals affiliate uh, when I was an intern. I worked with Orioles, Brewers, Yankees, uh, Padres affiliates along the way. And then I went to indie ball, independent professional baseball. And before I went there, to me, independent baseball had a stigma about it. It wasn't affiliated ball. It was this lesser product. And then I went to Indie Ball and I realized, wow, we get to make our own roster. We don't have to play the guy who's batting 190 just because he was a first round draft pick. If he's batting poorly, then he, we show him the bench. If he can't figure it out, we show him the door. I thought, this is amazing. We get control over our product. But we were getting guys that were in a different stage in their career. So I was in indie ball and then an opportunity arose in summer collegiate ball. And I thought, why do I want to do that? It's not even pro. I looked down on it again, just like I had looked down on indie ball. And um, then I got in summer collegiate ball and it's sort of the best of both worlds. You get control over your roster. You get to build a roster the way you want to. You want them to, to, to play small ball, those are the guys you recruit. You want to swing for the fences, those are the guys you recruit. You want to be pitching heavy, again, those are the guys you recruit. But you're also getting players before they turn pro, players who could be drafted, who could go on to the majors. So you're getting them like in affiliated ball early in their career arc. So in that way, it's the best of both worlds. Your, your players have a future, at least some of them do, but you still have control. And you're not going to see a player who tears it up for a month and then your major league affiliate promotes it. So you can't even build a promotion around it. Uh, so there's also something to be said for, um, and I just said this to somebody yesterday, when a little kid runs up to one of our players in summer collegiate ball and asks him for an autograph, I'm not sure who's more excited, the kid or the player. 
players aren't talking about draft rounds and signing bonuses. They're just out here playing. And there's, there's a lot to be said for that. I think it's cool. I also think that I'd imagine as a coach, it, you might have more players who are really hungry to get better and, and hungry to work for it as opposed to veterans in double A or triple A who maybe know they're not going to be stars at this point. And they're just, you know, putting in their time. Um, do you think that you've noticed that from coaches have coaches said that coaches said that to you before and um, are there like, you know, cool success stories maybe from players that have played collegiate ball that you know of? Um, being successful at anything, but certainly being successful at sports means finding a way to overcome a defeat or a loss of some kind. Sometimes that loss is you lose a game. Sometimes that loss is an awful season. Sometimes a loss is just in a bat. Um, the hardest part for many professional baseball players is that when they were growing up, they were the man. They were the dude that was at the plate or on the mound when the, the game was on the line and they won it. And everyone who was on the team, everyone who watched the game said, that guy's going to be something. And they do that through high school, maybe through college. And then they get to professional baseball and they realize that everyone in the locker room is that same guy. Everyone is used to being the man. And you can only have two or three of those on the team. What happens when you're used to being that stud and now you find yourself the fifth outfielder or the last guy in the bullpen or a third catcher? Do you sit at the end of the bench and curse your, your manager? Do you, uh, or do you go into the coach's office and say, why am I there? What do you need to see from me? And how do I get there? How do you learn? We read all the time about both hitters and pitchers that keep books in Major League Baseball. They get an iPad or, or what have you, and they keep notes on everything. They don't keep notes on, oh, I love hitting against this guy. I get hits all the time. You take notes on the guy that beats you and how he beats you and how you get better again. And so when I was in Greensboro in North Carolina, they would talk about uh, this Yankees prospect who was real young after he got drafted and came to Greensboro and man, did he struggle. I think like 50 errors that season. Now it wasn't when I was there, it was a few years before then, but I mean, he just it was E after E after E. And um, he figured it out. Um, his name was Derek Jeter. So it's the funny thing is for some of the guys that we have here, this is the first time that they're seeing escalated um, uh, uh, competition. A lot of these guys played in high school and ran over everybody. Maybe they went to college. As a freshman, they get redshirted. They come to a place like, uh, like Kokomo to a league like the Northwoods League, and they're facing real competition. They get out there, and they're not very good. You wonder why. How could Stanford or, or UW or Nebraska choose to recruit a guy like this? The good ones learn. The, the ones with the right mindset learn and they go out there and they do what Derek Jeter did and take 50 errors and turn it into a, uh, a major league a hall of fame career. Sean Dunstan, Chicago guy. Yep. Sean Dunstan had a cannon of an arm at shortstop. 90 plus miles an hour, just picking balls up in the hole. In... I want to say Quad City and in Des Moines, they had to build 
um, fencing, like chicken wire fencing or netting behind first base because he had a cannon, but he couldn't control it. And he was picking off fans. So for the safety of their own paying guests, they had to put that up. I think Sean Dunstan kind of figured it out, just like Derek Jeter did. But that's the challenge, is when you're faced with an obstacle, do you figure out a way around it or over it? Or do you just sit down on the ground and curse its existence? And for players, especially at our level, at their age here, um, this could be the first time they're facing that. And it's an opportunity to define whether you're going to have a career or if this is something fun to do during college. Yeah, I, I think that's some great insight there. Um, so you mentioned it, this could be the first instance that these players get the sense of what it's like to be a pro. I mean, they're, they're not doing college work over the summer and that kind of stuff. Do you think it's a, a good, you know, first step towards, you know, making that leap to the next level? Summer collegiate ball is an immensely valuable environment for an aspiring professional baseball player. Um, and I say that for a couple of reasons, not just the, the increased level of competition and getting away from that college environment. Um, college can be very um, secluded. The, a big program can put you in an environment where you don't deal with the outside elements very much. Here, you don't have that protective layer. More importantly, you're playing in a minor league baseball style environment, playing six and seven games a week, traveling by bus on the road on a regular basis for road trips, um, playing with promotions and crowds and all of the things that go with that, and playing with wood bats. You're not playing in college with aluminum anymore. You're playing with the tools of a professional trade. And absolutely, scouts pay attention to what happens during the spring. But sometimes you watch, particularly with hitters, you watch a player play during the spring and you're not sure, is it the tool or the talent? And if they can hit with a wood bat in summer ball, then it's the talent. But to that point as well, pitchers have to learn how to pitch inside. And this is the first real opportunity for them to do it. Because you pitch inside on an aluminum bat, they can still fist that ball over the shortstop for uh, for a Texas league or single. Whereas they try and swing on an inside, uh, an inside pitch with wood, and they're going to come away with a splinter about this big and the dribbling ball to, to the pitcher. They're thrown out. They'll understand how to play with the professional tools of the trade once, once they play a little bit of summer collegiate ball. And it's also the same for the people that are in our front office. A lot of people who are in the front office are young and right out of school. They're interns or it's their first professional job. You're not on campus anymore. You're out in the real world and um, selling by phone or going in and meeting business people face to face. This isn't a, a class project. This isn't, hey, professor, look, we sold $6,500 in tickets for this game. Isn't that awesome? And this group sold $10 in tickets because somebody's mom felt bad for them. Um, you learn to sink or swim. And you learn whether this is something you really want to do for your career on and off the field. Um, you've been around baseball for a long time. Was GM kind of uh, the goal for you? Was that always kind of in the back of your mind? Or did you just kind of want to be in baseball? I, I know I, I'm kind of the same way for soccer and things like that. Was baseball just kind of that thing for you? Um, it's funny because I ask every intern or prospective intern, um, the second question I ask them in every interview is, what's your goal? And I don't mean what's your goal for this job? What's your goal five years from now? 20 years from now, picture yourself kicking your feet up on the desk, looking around the office and saying, yep, this was what I wanted to do it for. 
Tell me what that image is. Mine was always this. Um, and um, when I was younger, when I was early in my career and I was moving around a lot more and I was interviewing for jobs on a regular basis, my ambition, I think, scared some prospective bosses. When I was meeting with an assistant general manager or director of operations or something like that who was interviewing me, um, and they asked, so what's your career goal? I want to be a GM. I said it firmly with conviction, not saying, hey, you know, I'd like to be a GM. I'm going to be a general manager. And that, I think that scared some people who were going to be my bosses that maybe I was aiming higher than them. Um, there's nothing wrong with aiming high. Uh, there's nothing wrong with, uh, with having a clear picture of what you want. Write it in pencil because sometimes our, our goals change, but I've always wanted to do this. People ask me whether I wanted to work in Major League Baseball. And my answer was always no, because my day, as crazy as it might be, could be my first hour is sales. My next hour is dealing with food and bev. My next hour is working on marketing or social media. Then we're dealing with ballpark operations. Then I meet with the coach for a little while. Then we're dealing with some promotional or some media or some PR. Every day is different and every day is me putting my fingers in a lot of pies. Whereas when you're in major league baseball um, or a major league level organization, you, unless you're the president of business operations, you're handling one thing. You're handling marketing or sales or ballpark ops. And that, that's not what I got into this business for. I love the, the constantly changing landscape. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, you kind of mentioned a little bit, you know, about the interview process. Is there any advice that you would give your younger self or to someone who wants to kind of follow in your footsteps? My younger self probably not be so damn cocky. <laughs> um, I, it's funny, when I was an undergrad, I took an entrepreneurship class. And when most uh, of the students were um, were doing some restaurant or a little retail establishment down the street. I created a business plan for a minor league baseball team in Carson City, Nevada. Um, and to anyone who wasn't in the industry, I'm sure that looked professional and it looked informed and it earned me an A. And I read it a few years later after I'd been in the business and I was so off the mark that um, you learn, you learn. And uh, to my younger self, I think I was pretty good at being open-minded and trying to learn, but to my younger self and to anybody, be a sponge, be a sponge, um, seek the opportunity to learn and to do and not just say, um, hey, I did it. Can I go flirt with this person or can I go watch the game? Look for something else to do. Look for something else to learn. Um, I keep thinking back to you saying that you, you told someone that you wanted to be the GM eventually. Like that was your end goal. Um, I, I feel like I know I majored in sport management and I feel like there's a lot of people who have this goal is like, yeah, they tell somebody I want to be the general manager of this team, or I want to, I want to do this job. And sometimes it's so lofty that they almost get scoffed at a little bit. And they, they, you know, people have this interpretation like, okay, but what's your, what's your real goal? Like, what, what are you really going to fall back on? But then you, you know, you accomplished your goal and, you know, you got like to be general manager of a lot of different teams um, is there a, a certain path that you would recommend to somebody or maybe education or maybe just a mindset of, so you can accomplish that goal? 
I would say, first off, don't do what I did. <laughs> okay. Um, I've worked in a dozen different states now, um, which is fun. And I've gotten to see areas of the country I never would have. Um, but there is a certain something to be said for getting with an organization, an individual organization, distinguishing yourself there and growing within that organization. Um, because owners and, um, and people who are doing hiring for senior level positions, they wanna know that when they hire you, you're going to be committed to being there and being there for a while and not jumping ship the next time you see something shiny. Um, and I don't think that I did that, uh, but when, when I had my first full-time job, I was in California and our general manager uh, knew one real primary way of how to do business. And then the market changed underneath us. And our general manager could not change the way to do business. And as a result, it created a lot of friction between the GM and our fans, the GM and our staff. And so I knew I didn't want to be a one-trick pony. I didn't want to be someone who knew only one way of doing things. So it's important, I think, for anyone to go out there and learn more than just what you see in front of you. And sometimes that learning experience comes from changing your environment. And that's, what, that's the way I did it. I moved from high desert to Helena to Clinton to Rio Grande Valley to Greensboro. And I was a GM by the time I was 29. That was a lot of moving. Um, you can blend that a little bit more, stay in one place, learn some things and then take that uh, that experience and take it on the road a little bit. Well, I think you've hit most of our questions here. <laughs> we'll, um, uh, we'll end you with a fun one, something we like to do. If there's one past sporting event that you could go to, is there one that sticks out in your mind that you're like, I need to be there. I wish I would have seen this. <sighs> As a Philadelphia Flyers fan who has struggled through more than a few decades of uh, near misses and, and long misses. Go Hawks. See, you know, we were doing so well there for a while. Um, I'm never going to forgive Patrick Kane for that, by the way. Um, or Michael Layton for that matter. Um, I would love to go back. And my parents were there in 1974 and 75 when the Flyers won back-to-back -back cups and they went to Stanley Cup games. And I've been to Stanley Cup games that didn't turn out the right way. Um, I, I would love to go back to game six of 74 and see the Flyers uh, beat the Bruins and win that first Stanley Cup. I was in Boston in, uh, in 2004, when the Red Sox broke the curse. Um, I had gone to school in Boston. I hadn't been back to the city in years and I had just taken a job and I was back in town and you didn't need to be at Fenway. You didn't even need to be in Boston. You just needed to be somewhere in New England uh, to feel what that meant. Um, and there, there are organizations that represent or that wear a city's name across their chest. And then there are other organizations that are the identity of a city. And the Red Sox are the identity of Boston and New England. And when, when they won that title, all you needed to do, you just walked outside and put your arms out wide and it was as if a tidal wave just rushed upon you of, of adrenaline and, and euphoria. And when you are that passionate about any team and you've waited that long, 
to feel that feeling, it's irreplaceable. And maybe I will get to feel that when the, uh, the Flyers do win their next cup. I hope it's on the Blackhawks. Uh, now I do at least. Um, but if I don't get to feel that feeling, then I would want to go back to 1974. Yeah, that's awesome. I think one of my biggest regrets, at least as of now, is I wasn't in Chicago when the Cubs won game seven. I should have skipped my religion test the next morning and just gone to Chicago. One of uh, my mentors, my my true mentor, um, was a diehard Cubs fan. And, uh, and he made sure that he and his wife got back to Chicago for the World Series. Um, the longer it's been, the more it means. And... Um, if there's anything that I learned in this game, it's never take for granted that you're going to get back there. Uh, I've been fortunate. I've won a few rings over the years. When I was an intern, um, we were the great organization. The Royals were wonderful. They stacked us with prospects. And we went to the Carolina League Championship Series before we lost. I thought, hey, this is great. You, you have fun. You go to the Championship Series. It's always like this. I then went to high desert in the Cal league and we racked up more losses each of the next two seasons than any other team in minor league baseball. I appreciated that run to the finals with Wilmington a lot more after those two years. So when you have that opportunity, embrace it and savor the moment. Well, here's to hope in uh, Kokomo can, can have that experience <laughs> this time around. That we'd love to, we we want to go out there and have some fun and let's win a few games along the way. Sounds great. Well, we, we greatly appreciate you taking time out of your busy day. We heard the uh, phones ringing off the hook over there, so I'm sure you <laughs> have to get back to. Well, I appreciate the time. Thank you so much for, uh, for reaching out to me. And if you guys need anything, just let me know. Thank you. Best of luck on Thank the you. Thank you. Hey guys, thanks for joining us for this episode. As there's a drive in a deep left field by Castellanos, it will be a home run. And so that'll make it a 4 nothing ball game. Um, don't forget you can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and anywhere you get your podcasts. Don't forget to like, subscribe, follow, and comment down below. Thanks guys.